All right, so let's get into the message for today. Uh, we're continuing to do our Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. Uh, we're looking at 15 emphases that need to be rethought, uh, re-examined from a scriptural point of view, asking ourselves the question, is our biblical Christianity in our time period as biblical as we think it is? And doing the due diligence to uh, discover some things that we haven't been thinking about correctly uh, on things like paradigm levels and, and assumption levels and so forth. So uh, with that, we've identified 15 major topics that we think need to rethink, and we normally put those up on a kind of a rotating basis on here while I'm speaking. So the first uh, five were just up there, now that's six through ten. And we are currently uh, getting toward the end of Emphasis 4. So on your outline, you'll see that Roman numeral 2 just lists the, what the Emphasis 1, 2, and 3 were. Uh, and then Roman numeral 3 uh, talks about the last nine messages that we've gone through uh, in terms of uh, leadership uh, titles, goals, functions, things like that in the New Testament. Um, if you look under uh, point A there, our introductory mes message, we uh, talked about a few principles, one of which we'll re-mention today, that New Testament leadership terms are descriptive primarily before they're prescriptive. So uh, what kind of happens a lot of times in... in uh, in New Testament leadership is you have a calling and a gifting from God. And, you know, people are always asking me, like, uh, single people say, well, what if God, is, you know, a young, single young lady, what if God's asked me to marry a, a irresponsible, <laughs> and it's like, that, that you're not thinking straight, you know? Um, a lot of people are always, like, worried about their calling and so forth. Your calling in God will normally be something that you have a love for and a passion for. And uh, uh, they actually say, uh, if you, uh, even if you were not Christian, uh, because of the way God works motivational gifts, uh, look back to what you tended to be liking to do when you were nine, and that'll be probably an a insight into what you're called to do. And... Uh, that's really true. Like I, when I think about what did I mostly do when I was nine, I was the kid in the neighborhood that bugged all the other kids to get a baseball, basketball, or football game going every day. So I was on the phone. Come on, we just need two more guys and we can play full court, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, one one more guy and we have enough guys to take on the, the neighborhood, you know, that was a little bit, you know, half mile away from us. And, you know, we needed at least nine guys to have, get a baseball team together or whatever. And I was always that guy organizing that stuff every day and trying to envision people why they should quit watching TV, get outside. We didn't have video games back then. Uh, get outside and, and actually play football or what have you. So, uh, or go sledding or what, any of those other great uh, activities that you're called to do when you're young. So, um, all you know, descriptive before prescriptive, we'll mention again later today. Uh, then the last seven messages, we've been looking at a category of gifts. There's three major categories of gifts in the New Testament, and we've been looking at the service gifts, 
uh, also called the ministry gifts, uh, and uh, they come from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and they're all a little piece of his earthly ministry and his uh, uh, passion and his, his uh, priorities and how he went about building the kingdom. And so if you look at uh, Roman numeral 4, um, we start by getting oriented by saying Christ gave gifts to men, and those gifts in the body of Christ of leadership are more than just for the body of Christ, but through the body of Christ, they serve the whole world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. The joy of the whole earth is in the city of God. Amen. And so there, uh, the, if, the, if, the, if it wasn't for the church through the centuries, very little uh, progresses would have been made by mankind in, in almost any area, uh, but especially in, in man's uh, treating of his fellow man. So then uh, we got into the seven gifts, starting with helps in message 4D, uh, administrations 4E, teachers 4F, uh, shepherds 4G, evangelists 4H, and I, I put just enough about each of those that if you want to review this concept, these concepts without going back and listening to the whole message on those, uh, you could just look at the little bit of statements that I've left there and look up all the scriptures that I've listed with them, and you'd get a pretty decent review of them. I've tried, tried to give you enough there. Flipping over, last uh, week we did Prophets. I always tell a little joke that for too long the church has been a nonprofit organization, and uh, so um, uh, th- this week we're doing the last of the of the gifts. We've kind of worked them backwards in the way they're listed, because that's actually the 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 way that people grow into them. Uh, you know, as we're going to see, an apostle is actually someone who's a shepherd and teacher and evangelist and put together with at least some prophetic uh, gifts and bents. But, uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at that um, as we go through this. So let's, let's get into what an apostle is. And, uh, apostles come from the Greek word apostolos, and it literally means one who is sent. And of course, most New Testament words date, uh, the, the Greek that was used in New Testament times is often called Koine Greek. And it's, uh, you might, a good way to help understand it different than, say, classical Greek uh, from the, the, say, 5th century BC in the golden age of Pericles or, uh, you know, the 5th uh, the century when, when we uh, see Plato and, uh, of course, Socrates or as Bill and Ted said, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, when you see a lot of the Greek, great Greek playwrights and and all that, uh, they spoke uh, kind of what might be called classical Greek. Uh, both classical Greek and Koine Greek, the New Testament Greek, are dead languages. But a, a pretty decent analogy would be um, classical Greek is more like historical traditional English. And Koine Greek is more like American. And so anybody who really understands British English, especially maybe from the 17th century and 
uh, you know, likes to read Shakespeare and the King James Bible and all that kind of stuff, uh, might consider current American uh, vocabulary and usage somewhat of a decline, uh, somewhat of a bastardization of the language. And, uh, you know, like, um, languages tend to get better or get worse but they reflect what's going on in the culture. So if the culture's in decline, usually the language is in decline. However, you can have more than one kind of thing going on. So for instance, if the culture's in a technological revolution, you have all kinds of new words being invented all the time to, uh, to keep up with the technology. So our, our current American uh, dictionary is growing by leaps and bounds because new words are needed to describe all the new nifty stuff we can do. And uh, so, um, and even conceptually or philosophically, uh, you know, there's ideas like meta-narratives or whatever. So vocabulary is, is changing and developing as, there, as ideas change and develop. So uh, anyway, the... the New Testament term apostolos just meant in classical um, Greek, it just meant one who was sent uh, by, by another person. Uh, however, in the New Testament, it's used in a much more specific way, and that's what we're going to start examining here. So, uh, in the New Testament, an apostle is a delegate or an, an ambassador of the kingdom of God, of the community of the redeemed, and of the gospel message. Those three main thrusts are proclaiming the, the present reign of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, uh, per, uh, building Christian communities that demonstrate that kingdom of God or that are the agent of introducing that kingdom to the, to the world and centering that in the gospel of the kingdom. And, of course, if you know, understand the gospel means good news, uh, hopefully you've gotten the point drilled home by, by us over, and, and, I, and I occasionally see this point in other uh, Christian writings or books, uh, just came across it this week, um, where the, the argument is made is you can't understand the good news until you thoroughly believe the bad news, uh, the true news about our condition. So someone who doesn't understand the gospel would look at any kind of correction or any kind of admitting uh, I've got problems as kind of a hard thing to say or do, a negative. But anyone who gets the gospel of grace and the gospel of hope is quick to say, I'm a mess. <laughs> and uh, let me specifically tell you how messed. <laughs> and... Uh, and, you know, maybe uh, you're trying to grow in your eloquence and vocabulary skills so you can really get to the heart of the matter of how messed up you are because that's the key to unlocking God's grace. Romans 5.20 uh, tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so uh, someone who really gets the gospel is actually quite comfortable with everyone knowing their stuff. Because, uh, you know, the fact is we all have the same stuff. You know, we were all somehow metaphysically uh, 
in Adam and Eve when they sinned. And we uh, started uh, putting on fig leaves and running and hiding in the bushes and trying to keep God from knowing where we were. As, as silly as that is. Part of our sin nature is to, that we go through a thing with God that's very similar to children. I believe it's around nine months, maybe a little older. You, a lot of, I, you know, I haven't had little kids for a long time. Catherine can always remember the right stages, and I'm sure all you, uh, a lot of people in our church have little kids. But every kid goes through a stage where they're really fun to play peekaboo with because they actually don't uh, realize that when they close their eyes, you can still see them. <laughs> and they actually kind of think, you can't see me. And, uh, and so you go, you know, you play peekaboo with them and they're laughing and giggling and you tickle them a little bit and then you go hide around the corner and play peekaboo. And it's, it's great fun. When, and every kid goes through a great phase with that. And I'm not exactly sure the months that they are. We can, you can consult some of our parents with little kids after church if uh, and they can probably tell you. But that's actually the condition of fallen man. Fallen man, uh, and that's the condition of so much of our Christianity today because it's not gospel-centered. It's so much of a performance-based centering that um, we don't want people to know we're naked. We don't want people to know we're fallen. We're trying to look good. Uh, one nice thing about 60, being 63 and overweight and, uh, and having a crooked, broken nose and a funny-shaped head is I gave up on trying to look good a long time ago because it's, it's, it's not possible. Uh, I'm hoping maybe with them, you know, when we get resurrected bodies in Christ, maybe God will reshape my head and my nose and, and somehow I'll be able to lose weight and uh, be able to slam dunk the ball. But of course, if everybody can slam dunk, you know, maybe it won't be that great, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but hopefully, I'll be able be able to pull off looking better. But in the meantime, I'd rather just admit I'm ugly, and I hope you love me anyway. Um, so there we go. So now, so let's go through some characteristics of apostles. Uh, first, some general overview. Then I'm going to make uh, seven characteristics of, of biblical apostles. Some general overview, though, is that they're sent with orders. Uh, it's very clear in Acts 1 that Jesus, it says that uh, he appeared to the disciples many times over the 40 days. I believe the Bible re uh, records about eight uh, appearances of Christ after the resurrection. But it, it implies clearly that he appeared to them in many way, days with many convincing proofs. So he probably appeared to them a lot more. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 informs us that he appeared to over 500 brethren. And it lists some of the great superstars that he appeared to, including the 12 apostles and his brothers, uh, including James. So if you remember in, by, in John uh, chapter 7, James and Jude and Jesus' other brothers, Silas, and I forget the fourth one's name, uh, they, weren't, they were not believing in him. And so, and it's interesting that by Acts chapter 15, Jesus' uh, brother James is uh, obviously the key lead pastor in the Jerusalem church because uh, 
By this time, Peter and John had started to do more trans, translocal apostolic kinds of ministries, and they weren't, in, in, uh, they weren't uh, the head pastors of the day-by-day local community in Jerusalem anymore. James had become that. So, um, you know, a, a, an apostle is someone who's sent with orders. Jesus didn't, didn't say, after it says he appeared to them over 40 days with many convincing proof, it says that he gave them these orders. And he didn't, it doesn't say he gave them the great suggestion, you know, go into all the world if it's not too inconvenient, and maybe you should consider preaching the gospel to all creation, and, may, you know, maybe you can make decisions of all nations and altar calls and instead of, you know, none of that is how the Bible reads. You know, he gave them commands, uh, Acts 1 clearly says. So, um, secondly, they had a, they, their message was not like we, we uh, even though 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when we're proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation, that we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there is an element of that, like, you know, please get your self together by coming by allowing the grace of God to enter your heart and so forth. Uh, mostly our me- the message of the gospel properly understood is an announcement. These are the facts. And, if, and in fact, every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and you can either do it willingly now and join the team, or you're, eventually your knees will be broken and, and uh, you'll bow that way. And uh, so... It's, it's, it's not uh, really that antagonistic of a message, but it is, a, it is an announcement. It's a herald. It's a proclamation. It's, uh, very, it's very clear facts uh, about a sinless life, about attesting miracles, about God in, in human flesh, about a, a false trial and, and false accusations, and, and about a torturous death and about a, a very verified resurrection where uh, 500 people claim to have seen him resurrected. And almost every one of those faced a decision uh, somewhere between 30 AD and uh, 70 AD, uh, whereby they could choose to save their life if they were willing to say, I didn't see Jesus resurrected. I was just kidding about that. And none of them did. You know, if you know about uh, Galileo and the great paradigm shift that he brought about in, in postulating that we lived in a solar system that was not geocentric, the, the, the planets and, and the sun did not revolve around the earth as was previously thought, but the planets and in, in the earth revolved around the sun he, you know, thus making a great uh, paradigm shift in astronomy. Uh, but when he was put on trial for those ideas, his ideas were so well accepted in the scientific community of Europe that his daughter talked him into at his trial saying, okay, I recant my positions. I was just kidding about that. Because he realized everyone already knew his ideas were true. There was no turning that back. And she said, so why die for it? It's your, the ideas are established, and whether you die for it or you don't die for it, they're going to stay. 
So he said, I was just kidding about that. And so he got to live the rest of his life under house arrest instead of being executed and burned at the stake. Uh, all, you know, all the people who claimed to have seen Christ risen from the dead had that same opportunity to, uh, to worship the emperor, to uh, renounce their faith, uh, to cooperate with the Sanhedrin in the early cases, like Stephen or whatever, or James. And none of them did. None. And in fact, in the great persecution, uh, approximately 290-ish A.D. of Diocletian, uh, now you're, now you're uh, two and a half centuries later, and so you're not dealing with people who claim to have seen Christ risen from the dead. You're dealing with people who are going on the witness of the original people who saw Christ raised from the dead. And there were some that backed down and chickened out and, and couldn't and, you know, decide, renounce their faith. And that became a big issue in church history when the persecution was over after the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., um, that became a big issue because the church had to say, what do we do with the people who, who uh, chickened out and, and, and denied Christ? Can we restore them? I, th- I think God anticipating that gives us both the... Uh, the fact that, that Peter denied Christ three times and was restored, and that John Mark chickened out on the first apostolic journey and later was restored, and Paul said to receive him, and wrote the Gospel of Mark for us uh, after that great fall. So that, that's interesting, because that became a big issue in the church history. Can we restore someone who, under the threat of execution, denied Christ and denied the faith? Can they be restored to the Lord and to the church? And there were lots of Christians who thought they couldn't. So anyway, uh, that's just to say, all that was just to emphasize the point that the message of the gospel is a proclamation. It's an announcement with specific content, most of which starts with, he is risen. You know, there's no examples of them speaking about Christ in the, uh, in the book of Acts that does not emphasize that he is risen. You know, even when Paul is talking to the Athenians at Areopagus or Mars Hill, uh, the Athenian philosophers who had ta- describes them as always wanting to hear something new, uh, he, he talks about the resurrection with them it, as, as the proof that it's true. And of course, lastly, apostles have a blueprint and that blueprint is of, the, uh, of all the major ideas of the faith, especially of what the community of the redeemed, the church is. We live in a time when so-called Bible-believing Christianity has very little understanding or doctrine of the church. And so and, uh, the church is God's plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. So if you properly understand what is the most important thing to do as a Christian, it is always to restore the church to what Christ intended it to be. It must always start there. Nothing can be accomplished for God if we don't restore what the church is shooting for and what it is living for. 
Now, the other th- next thing I want to say is that the word apostle is used of three different groups in the New Testament, and that's important to understand because there are apostles today, but not like the first group. The first group was the 12 witnesses that, inclu- of course, included Judas Iscariot, who disqualified himself by uh, betraying Christ and then following that up with remorse instead of repentance and hanging himself. So... Uh, there some some Bible scholars and theologians say that the apostles were wrong when in Acts one they chose someone to replace Judas Iscariot. Um, they put forth two candidates, if you remember, and cast lots and prayed, and God show us which one you want, and then they chose Matthias and, and uh, so forth. Some people believe that they were um, incorrect to do that. Uh, the reason, of course, they, they wanted 12, hopefully everyone knows this, is because 12 is the number of government in the uh, Bible. 12 represents the government of the kingdom of God. And as there were 12 tribes in, in the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament is based on 12 apostles as foundational stones. Now, those who, uh, just so you know my position and... and uh, uh, is that you should never assume something that the apostles did in the New Testament was a sin or a mistake, because uh, the word sin, hamartia, just means to miss the target. Uh, Bethany's an archer, has a little target in her backyard. And uh, I saw it last night because there's a little bonfire there. And that's when... Uh, you shoot the arrow, misses the target altogether, and goes into the leg of the little kid that's walking through the park. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and then the police say, you're not supposed to shoot bows and arrows in the city. But uh, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, hopefully that will never happen. But uh, hamartia means to miss the target, and the target is the glory of God, to be a perfect representation of Christ. And of course, all Christians miss the target from the time you're born uh, and even as you progress in sanctification and maturation, we're still horribly missing the target. So you should never assume that something the New Testament apostles and books did was a mistake. People will say, well, God sent the persecution on the church that, that begins to disperse the church after Stephen's death and, and when Paul starts going out to uh, Antioch to arrest other Christians or wherever he was on the way to Damascus, I'm I'm sorry. And uh, uh, some people say, well, God did that because the church had made a mistake and not done what it was supposed to do and and begin to move the gospel out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and so forth. But it doesn't ever specifically say that. And... uh, Probably that's more likely correct than it would be to say that they were wrong to have chosen another uh, apostle. Some of them say, some people say if they had just waited, God was anticipating the calling and the ministry of Paul, and he would have been uh, that 12th person. But I disagree uh, because, of course, Paul was, first of all, the uh, first apostle that was more focused on the Gentiles. And uh, uh, secondly, there's just nothing to, to say that the apostles were wrong in choosing someone. Nevertheless, um, 
the first group of apostles that the Bible talks about are specifically the ones that were called to be witnesses of the ministry and life of Jesus. Now, a lot of people are enjoying this film that's out now or the series of TV shows called The Chosen. I've watched, uh, I'm a binge watcher sometimes, so I've actually uh, started in the late evening and stayed up till 5.30 one morning, 5.45 the other morning, and watched all eight episodes. The the one took me a little longer because I also watched the uh, pilot. Uh, And then I've watched a few of the episodes a third time, so apparently I like them. But... um, of course, you have to kind of, to enjoy them, you have to kind of go along with uh, some of these ideas that are extra biblical are sort of absurd, and some of them you just kind of want to go, well, you know, let's go with it. And, you know, like I've, there are speculations on the extra biblical th- thoughts and attitudes and motivations of Nicodemus. I find that one pretty interesting. Uh, Matthew, that's a little far-fetched, you know, uh, the way they interpret both Matthew and Simon. Uh, Peter, but in any case, um, one of the things that is very wrong about the whole thing is they show Jesus calling twelve. Of course, in the in the first season, they only have it. Uh, they're going to obviously call more in the next season because they only got to seven in the first season. If you see the scene where they're traveling to Samaria and so forth, there's uh, uh, nine people, Jesus, Mary Magdala, and, uh, and seven of the apostles that have been called by this time, including Simon and Andrew and James and John, and I think Thaddeus and, and uh, one of the other Jameses, I think. Um, anyway, the two that were at the Passover supper in episode uh, three, maybe. Anyway, um, the, 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 the problem with all that is Jesus called far more than 12 right from the beginning. And there was far more than one woman traveling with them. The Bible makes it clear that there were many women who were traveling with them, who were contributing from their private resources. So likely, um, hey, Teresa, give me that little bag of tangerines. I'm I'm not feeling so hot today, and so I'm going to eat a little bit of strength, something to keep my strength up as I'm going. Thank you. Um, Likely... Um, more ladies traveled with the with the the company of the disciples and the apostles uh, when they were in the southern part of Israel called Judea, and maybe even further south in Idumea, Idumea, and uh, um, less probably traveled with them when they were in the northern part called Galilee, in the uh, northeastern part called the Decapolis. Uh, you know they travel. You know it clearly tells us where they're at in various uh, historical situations and so forth. And so um, it's likely that there might have been like 15 or 20 or 30 women uh, went more when they were in Galilee and maybe a little bit less than that, or, or uh, I'm sorry, when they were in Judea and maybe a little less when they were in Galilee. It, it never gives us clear numbers. It does say that many women traveled with them. And it also tells us that in Luke chapter 10, which is relatively early in the ministry of Christ, he sends out 70 others. And I would say, based on Acts 1.15, I would say there probably was an average of over 100 
people in the company of Jesus that were traveling around with him. However, in Mark chapter 3, he spends all night in prayer in the, on the mountain, then comes down, and in Mark three fourteen, it says that he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That's so important to get that phrase, they might be with him. Because the first thing they were called to do was be with them. Guess what? You are called to do some of these seven uh, ministry gifts. Every Christian is. You are called to exercise some of the nine spiritual gifts. You've been born with and, and have, wo- have woven into you some of the various motivational gifts. But your first calling is to the caller to be with him. That's why in our five C's of leadership, it starts with the caller before the calling. God's first desire for you is to enjoy him and to know him and be intimate with him and to dwell in his manifested presence. You know, we, uh, many of us, uh, by the second or third song when we're worshiping, we start to sense the presence of God and so forth. But actually, you're meant to, to start doing that when you first become a Christian and the, the, the rest of the body of Christ is helping you learn how to get in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. But, you're, but the goal is within a year or two or three of starting the Christian life where you live there, where you're always in a supernatural manifest presence of God, hearing the Holy Spirit, doing miraculous things, doing what I call the common everyday uh, book of Acts type of miracles. Uh, those of you who do, say, our sozo ministry or our deliverance ministry or serve on the teams where uh, people get baptized in the Spirit, you can't do any of that without spiritual gifts. You know, without the Holy Spirit showing you the names of demons and giving you guidance and so forth, you can't do anything with deliverance. If you ever want to be effective in counseling, I'm all for studying uh, the, the three major schools of thought and counseling. Uh, and the, the best school of thought is, is mostly uh, covered in the counseling class that we uh, take from another church. Uh, what, what are they called? Uh, Sh- uh, Clear Creek, right? Clear- and, of course, uh, some of the people at Grace Covenant Church uh, help teach that and so forth, too. But I'm all for that. But you will never be effective in counseling until you're so filled with the Holy Spirit that all the counseling and principles and biblical principles and scriptures that you memorize, God gives you insights right in the midst of the discussion. Without that, you can't help anybody about anything. So, in in fact... um, the, the people that I uh, meet with that I, that I feel like, boy, we've really made some progress. We're really, I'm really starting to help them, and they've started to grow in God and be helped by God and so forth, are usually the people that are doing the best job of sort of understanding. Uh, we're here to wrestle with the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit and, and figure it out together what God is saying to us. You know, that's why I always, always say, uh, you're your own best doctor, don't, don't go to the doctor to uh, have him help you with your uh, diet or whatever until you study nutrition for yourself. 
he says as he eats a tangerine. Um, so, the first group in the New Testament of, of apostles is the 12 that he named in Mark 3.14. The second group I, I, is basically the apostle Paul himself. Because he's, he calls himself one untimely born. And uh, he has all the, as we study the characteristics of an apostle coming up, and I got to get more on target here and move along. Um, he's, uh, Paul uh, has all the characteristics of the original 12, except for his scene of Jesus uh, was was post, not only post-resurrection, but post-ascension. Now, um, the other, the last group of apostles, in my opinion, are the type of apostles that there still can be today. There are people like Barnabas, Timothy, Silvanus, and so forth. And I listed Junia because that's uh, probably the most controversial apostolic name in the New Testament. She's listed in, in Romans 16. And of course, uh, since there's only one mention and we don't know much about her from church history, you can't, you can't um, assume too much, but, but that is a woman's name and uh, who's, who's listed in a phrase that says also outstanding among the apostles, and she's listed in a, in a list of, of apostolic people. Now, um, the, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and, and open up uh, my Bible and read Acts chapter 13, 1 through 4. Uh, hopefully you know by now that the Antioch church is the model church of the New Testament. Many things were done in Jerusalem that God never intended Christians to do. And not understanding how to look for models and patterns and stuff, all the time I hear uh, Bible teachers uh, say they kind of mock the idea of getting back to New Testament patterns because they say, are you going to sell all your property and lay it at the apostles' feet as they did in Jerusalem? You really want to be a New Testament church and so forth? Yes, we do want to be a New Testament church. And no, we're not going to sell our property and lay it at the apostles' feet. Because first of all, that original group of apostles is not, no longer with us. And secondly, God never directed that in any other church in the history of Christianity. He had, he, if, and later, as you see, much of the New Testament emphasis is especially Paul, but other leaders to, uh, asking for relief and collection of the poor in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, Peter and James remind Paul and Barnabas to remember the poor, and they mean the poor in Jerusalem, because they uh, practiced a, not a state-mandated uh, communism, but a church-mandated communism, in a sense. Really, the, the scriptures make it clear the Holy Spirit led that. But the reason that is, is because of the Mount Olivet Discourse of Matthew 23, 4, and 5, which is also, uh, I think it's Mark 
15, is it? Uh, I have to go back and check, but I'm pretty sure that's it. And it's actually kind of scattered around Luke. But Jesus makes it clear that, uh, I wish I could go into Mount Ebal and Mount, well, anyway. Uh, he makes it clear, standing on the Mount of Olives, uh, facing Jerusalem, that God is going to judge Jerusalem and that that would happen within a generation. And so the early church knew they weren't staying in Jerusalem from the beginning. And if you ever want to understand a little bit more of that, just write down in Google, Flight to Pella, P-E-L-L-A, which is just like Pella Windows, and read about, because in 69 AD, there was a prophecy in the church of Jerusalem that said, now's the time that Jesus was talking about, and the rest of the, the remaining Christians, which were few by then, in Jerusalem left, and they went to a city called Pella, which is in the northeast part of Israel in what's in the area called the Decapolis. It was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, meaning ten cities. And, Paul, and the church left Jerusalem so they wouldn't be there when the Roman armies destroyed the city, as Jesus had predicted they would. So read a good preterist or partial preterist interpretation of eschatology like James Marcellus Cook's uh, Eschatology of Victory, and that'll help you uh, start to understand the New Testament a lot better. But in any case, uh, Jerusalem was never the model church. Antioch was. So let's read Acts 13. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. And so we're remembering from our uh, scriptures or from our teachings that teachers also are shepherds. Shepherds are teachers and teachers are shepherds. And um, before you can become an apostle, you have to be an evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. So it's basically saying there were basically uh, two, you know, it's kind of, doing a shorter list, but it's saying there were the prophets, apostles, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, there were those kind of leaders in Antioch. And then it lists uh, five of them, Barnabas and Simeon, who was, was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Mananian, who had been brought, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. So Barnabas and Saul had known for a long time, this is our goal. Antioch, we're building a model church here with a leadership team, and God is going to take some of that leadership team and send it out to plant other churches based on the Antioch model. That's why Paul is able to say in his letters, as we teach in all the churches over and over, because there was a pattern of things they taught that was, even though churches are obviously different in nationality, different in age group, different in racial makeup, and so forth, they're the same in, in some of the principles of the kingdom of God and of Christian community they live. And they practice certain things like uh, taking up a uh, collection on the Lord's Day and gathering on the Lord's Day, and, and you know, so many things were done in the churches over and over. Then when they had fasted and prayed, which I think means they fasted and prayed a second time and laid their hands on them, which is uh, sim symbolic in the New Testament, imparting the Holy Spirit, imparting anointing, and imparting authority, 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and, and thus the uh, three apostolic journeys of Paul, which are called missionary journeys these days, but really they should really be called apostolic journeys. That's kind of a misnomer, because it's more, much more, what they're doing is much more than what we think of in ter- uh, a missionary's doing. Uh, they're planning Christian communities, and a very important factor is after each trip, they go back to Antioch, strengthen the disciples, and report to the Antioch uh, uh, disciples all that God has done among them. You know, um, now, uh, shoot, I've developed too many points too long, so I'm, uh, as usual. Uh, I was doing better today for a while there. Uh, so let's talk about these seven characteristics. As you see, number one, they're sent by the Holy Spirit, confirmed by you know uh, shepherding and prophetic and, and teaching leadership in the church, and they're taking a community pattern with them. You know, Grace Christian Fellowship Singapore, Grace Christian Fellowship Bangalore, Grace Christian Fellowship Columbus, if that's, you know, I'm going to allow the different leaders to change the name if they want. We don't have any uh, necessary investment in that name. But uh, we asked David Yamarte what he would like to call the church in Bangalore. And he said, Grace Christian Fellowship of Bangalore. I said, works for me. Um, but all of these are going to be based on the pattern we're building here. That's why, you know, it's so important since we don't have very many people here, but it's, it's so important that Anvesh is discipling David Furlow, and David Furlow is growing quite steadily and in very good and pleasant ways. And it's so important that we actually have that with everyone. We can't afford to have uh, seven... We can afford to have lots of people who come to us pretty troubled. We can't afford to leave them pretty troubled. Because the gospel puts whole lives back together in every way. The gospel helps you in every aspect of your Christian life. Secondly, apostles are are evangelists, but they are more than a local evangelist. They plant churches. And they assist the Holy Spirit in those churches in reproducing more leadership in the same uh, sevenfold pattern that we're talking about here. And that's why, let's say, for instance, in Titus, Paul tell, like Paul is the leader of an apostolic team. So another thing I, we're going to get to, the next, next one is going to be that an, an apostle is always a team builder. And there's about 30 names in the New Testament that are associated with Paul and were his team. And so, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that I'm an, an apostle, but, you know, I was talking to Ray Nethery to, this week, and he goes, well, your calling is really apostolic, and da-da-da. And it's like, you know, I, from the beginning, I've made it clear. I'm building an apostolic team in Grace Christian Fellowship of Dayton. That's why we have, you know, 15 people on a leadership team. That's why we're always investing in growing more leaders uh, who can lead people to Christ, who can cast out demons, who can counsel, who uh, know a lot of Scripture, who uh, are really team players and put the team ahead of their own personal ideas and 
and all, every, every sort of thing, and who develop, you know, uh, unique and somewhat different gifts, but complementary, and all of that kind of thing. And, um, uh, and that they function as a team. And, you know, we, we, are, you know cl- we are clear already that we're supposed to build churches in Hyderabad, Bangalore, uh, Singapore, in Columbus, Ohio, and Dayton at least. And in most cases, because of what they, I call Paul's modus operandi, those are very strategic and important cities. And each of those churches... Uh, I hope to get those churches off the ground, but by the time I get too old and die, I'm 63, hopefully I have another 20, 25 years of productive service, and hopefully uh, so many of you will be doing so much by then, and your spiritual children will be leaders and planning churches and so forth. And each of those churches is going to be the center of a, of a movement of churches. So like a, like a spider plant sends out shoots and... and uh, you know, creates new plants. Uh, so we will train leaders. We'll have a Bible college in each of those places, and and we'll have all the foundational and intermediate books, and we'll raise up new elders, and we'll teach people how to cast out demons and how to lead people to Christ and how to disciple them into healthy families and that have great marriages and know how to raise their kids and, and all the things we do. Uh, in our churches, we'll just duplicate those, but especially in those central churches that are, that are you know, there won't just be one church in Singapore. Uh, you know, there might be the first five or 10 or 15 years we're there, who knows? Uh, you know, only God knows how fast it'll grow. But eventually, uh, you know, the other night, uh, well, a, couple, a few weeks ago, we had, uh, Catherine and I had Sam, Sam and Amber over for dinner. And we actually just sat there for about an hour with our phones reading about Bangkok and, and all the cities that are near enough to, uh, to Singapore to reach that city from Singapore. And, uh, and there's a lot of them. Singapore is by far the most strategic city in Asia. And uh, uh, Bangalore and Hyderabad are the most strategic cities in India, even though New Delhi is the capital. Um, that's a whole other subject because of a mega trend that, that the technology and the money is moving south in India. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that if you want to later. Um, anyway, so um, lots of people are called to be on an apostolic team that are shepherds, teachers, evangelists, and the idea would be to be able to do some of it. Like Timothy was not an evangelist. But he was a great shepherd and a teacher. He became the head shepherd of the church at Ephesus after Paul's death for some time. And, of course, the Apostle John also had that role in Ephesus for a while. But, um, you know, at a certain point, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. You know, one of the things about being on an apostolic team is you have to be a little bit of a generalist enough that even though you might not be a great evangelist, you can do it when, it when it's needed. Or you might not be like the best teacher on the team, but, you can be, but you're able to teach. And, uh, you know, some people are better one-on-one disciplers. I'm not that great of a teacher because I can't 
condense my materials enough, but I'm working on it, and <laughs> Christiana and I have a plan to get there. But, uh, but I'm great on one-on-one, as long as you're willing to have a three-hour Bible study. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, different people have different functions. So, fifthly, all true apostles have signs and wonders that accompany their ministry. In other words, there's people who get healed from asthma. There's people who get delivered from demons. There's people who get uh, emotional healing. Uh, there's, there's people who get physical healings or whatever. But there are uh, some signs and wonders uh, in, in, the, in the apostolic team. Now, hopefully there's times of visitation, like several that are described in the New Testament, where people are even getting healed by Simon Peter's shadow. And, uh, you know, I uh, don't want to get like the TV guys, but they're, you know, where they get their crazy thing with their, you can send them money and they'll send you one of these, um, what is it? What are these called? Handkerchiefs. Um, You know, that, you know, obviously anything that's in the Bible, someone is going to twist and pervert. We're never going to sell anointed handkerchiefs for money. But people were getting uh, healed just by, uh, you know, touching Paul's handkerchief. So um, signs and wonders, there are several scriptures there. But due to time's sake, I'm going to let you read them. Uh, remember that the one in the, sec- the second scripture that's from Romans is Paul summarizing his ministry to the Romans uh, sort of late in the game after he's planted a lot of churches all the way from Jerusalem uh, to Rome. And so he's describing, and, that, and he says, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Uh, so, uh, sixthly, uh, an apostle carries a significant measure of faith imparted by Christ that, has the, that usually starts with the way God called them and uh, usually includes some sort of special, uh, powerful uh, encounters with Christ. Seventhly, uh, apostles have biblical blueprints for building model New Testament churches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Uh, Ephesians 3, 4, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, uh, you know, to proclaim and, and establish the mystery of Christ in the church. Uh, it's a, it's a, a blueprint kind of thing. Now, are there apostles today? Remember, that's why I, wanted, I mentioned that we would talk about uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. So prescriptive is like, oh, we, we've got to have uh, three elders at least or five elders at least, and they have to behave this sort, certain sort of way. But the way New Testament uh, gifts function is you uh, start to disciple and, and release people to, to do stuff. So whenever I think someone has potential, I give them jobs like teaching at 930 or leading worship or uh, being in charge of going out to share the gospel or, or whatever. Because you just keep your eye out for what does God equip them and anoint them to do. A discussion I've had with Deanna a number of times is I've tried to be a good friend to her, 
and I've tried to teach her uh, everything I know about helping people come to Christ and be discipled and get on fire and get well-founded and so forth. However, Deanna has learned far more directly from God because she stores up scripture in her mind and heart and she reads good books and then she does it. She goes out and does the ministry and as Amber can tell you, you know, uh, she, she's getting better and better and more and more fruitful at Sozo's, not because I'm such a great Bible teacher because <laughs> we've talked a few times about Sozo, but I, you know, I don't uh, know all this stuff. What, what I do know is that we take people who have good character and a good loyalty to the team and to the vision, who obviously care for one another and love one another and so forth, and we give them chances to do stuff. And we see, you know, you, you start 1 Corinthians 15. That's why helps and administrations is first. First the natural, then the spiritual. You know, first they're in charge of mowing the lawn or taking out the trash. I always joke, your first job is to be the chairman. The chairman of the group is the person who sets up the chairs and takes down the chairs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Logan is always such an excellent servant. And last night I knew I was going to, to Bethany and, and the ladies' bonfire uh, for, for um, Kyle's birthday. And uh, so I had Logan take a bunch of chairs over there. <laughs> He's the chairman. Uh, so... Um, First, you have to serve as the chairman. And, uh, you know, I, I literally, in 45 years of being a Christian, I've not been a church hopper, so I've been in under 10 churches. Uh, and, and, I, and four of them are, let's see, yeah, four of them are churches my wife and I started. And, uh, but I've never been in a church where my first job wasn't to take out the trash. In fact, that's what I'm best at. <laughs> you know, I you know Sam Moante does that for us now, but but I envy Sam sometimes. You know, and, and sometimes I just empty the trash anyway, even though Sam hasn't come yet. But because uh, you know I miss it. But uh, uh, you know, that's where you you actually start with the natural. You help with the technology, or or you help with the babysitting, or you help with uh, you know do someone's makeup for their wedding. I, I've never done that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's actually where, where ministry starts. And then, and then it grows into, little by little, the apostles actually said in Acts 6, it's not desirable for us to take time away from the ministry of the word to serve tables. Not because they were above that in their heart, but because they were now had kind of graduated to a type of service that the church couldn't do without. The church can't uh, say, well, let's, put, let's set aside the ministry of, uh, of the word so that brother so-and-so can have more time to take out the trash. Uh, you, you know, what, what happens is if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in much. If you're faithful in that which is another, you know, some of the people who want more ministry but don't always uh, emerge into more ministry, it's partly because they don't see team first as, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, loyalty and, and uh, loving one another and being an extension and, and hoping the other person gets the credit and all that kind of stuff is, is the first qualification of being used for stuff.
And so, uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt that a big factor in who's on things like leadership teams and, and committees and so forth is people that we can discern the, the uh, you know, the, the group project comes first in their heart and mind always. And they would never uh, divide the group for uh, a particular emphasis in their mind or something that they're thinking is more important than, than whether the groups go in the right direction together. And now, you don't take that to the point. Uh, uh, obviously, you have to keep the minimal things that were on the same page. That's why we have the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the symbol of Chalcedon. At least those four, and we, we value some of the Reformation creeds and some of the other creeds, but you know, we don't have to agree about every other thing about, you know, communion and baptism and, and how to worship and whether we should have old-fashioned hymns or more modern or, you know, we don't really have to see eye to eye on all that if we keep in, in mind the bigger vision that God has given the whole family and the whole team. And you can kind of discern who gets that. It's not, not that hard to do. And that's, that's uh, one of the most important ingredients uh, in terms of uh, the Antioch factor and the apostolic team and, and building that together. And so, um, you know, that's what allows guys like, you know, there's guys like Nathan and Stephen Leopold who probably understand scripture and theology and, and, and those things much more than I do at this point. They've, you know, I played a factor and get them pointed in the right direction, but they're so much more gifted in those areas that I don't understand half the stuff they understand. But, but you know, like that was something I, I credit my sons with doing a good job. My sons kind of understood that even though they passed me in all these ways, you know, when they were making a decision about career or business or marriage or whatever, they still needed my input and my advice, and they still needed to stay in a, in a certain kind of place in terms of the team. And so, um, uh, hopefully this has been helpful because all of what we do with helps and administrations, all of what we do with shepherding, teaching, evangelism, all of that in the local church is ultimately the training ground, much like you teach your kids how to take out the trash and mow the lawn and do the laundry and all those kind of things, because someday they're going to be in charge of problem solving on all kinds of very much more important levels. And, uh, you know, we had a, a rule in my house that my sister Janine taught me that uh, all the kids had to do their own laundry by the time they were in third grade. No more help from mom. If you're in third grade and you can't do your own laundry, that's a problem. You're not growing up very much. And uh, so... Uh, you know, we didn't have them do their own laundry when they were three. That would be a disaster. But, but we did have them doing their own laundry by the time they were seven because they, they need to learn how to problem solve. They need to, you know, to figure out how to sort colors and, and what's a small load, medium, and large load and, and uh, how to get it out of the dryer before the, the permapress stuff starts to get wrinkled or, or, or what have you. Uh, you know, you, you actually start equipping people uh, to be empowered to do their life by just having them do their life and, 
And uh, like, if your mommy's still helping you do your laundry and you're 10 or 12 years old, you're being disempowered. You're being robbed of growing up. And so don't do their laundry, Tiffany, after they're seven. <laughs> and, uh, and, and when, uh, when Samuel protests, you can send them to me. I'll talk to him. <laughs> no. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get uh, who's, who's uh, doing John Gray's thing today. Um, Leah, you're doing it? Okay. No, on Vish. Let's get on Vish up here.